This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello everyone and welcome back to the British Royal Fanatic Podcast. I'm Hayden your American friend with a passion for British royal history. The weather is starting to get warmer, things are starting to feel like spring and like summer again, so wherever you are in the world, I hope you are getting some of this really beautiful weather. It is quite nice outside. Entering 2021, the royal family was dealt quite a precarious hand. The interview with the Duke and Duchess of Sussex put all of the family drama center stage and Soon thereafter, His Royal Highness the Duke of Edinburgh passed away. What was once kept behind private doors was now flung into the spotlight, center stage for the world to scrutinize. Now, as the family slowly leaves mourning, the tides are beginning to change, not only for the better, but there is an air of change that's being felt not only within the royal family, but us and the public are starting to notice. The country has been making attempts to reopen as the pandemic is slowly being controlled worldwide, and we're starting to feel a sense of normalcy return after being in lockdown for so long, and the royal family is feeling that. Engagements are happening in person again, we're starting to see them out and about again, and it's really refreshing and nice to see that happening. Of course, a lot of the celebrations that have been happening have really helped with trying to boost the morale of the royal family. Her Majesty the Queen celebrated her 95th birthday. His Royal Highness Prince Louis of Cambridge celebrated his third birthday. And coming up, Her Royal Highness Princess Charlotte of Cambridge will be celebrating her sixth birthday, I believe. But today, to continue this trend of celebrations and good tidings, to the royal family. Today we are talking about the 10th wedding anniversary of their royal highnesses, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. William and Catherine have been married for 10 years and have been together for quite a long time, and that is a feat in and of itself. Marriage is never easy, and it looks different for everyone, and we've seen them have their high points, and we've seen them have their low points. They've stuck through it, for better or for worse, sicker or for poorer, for 10 years now. And today, we're going to look back at the wedding of the decade, wedding of the century, the wedding of William and Catherine, and this monumentous occasion that really helped usher in the royal family into a new modern chapter. Before we talk about the wedding, let's get a little background about Prince William and Catherine. It is known that William and Catherine had a long romantic and private relationship years before they were engaged. They met while attending the University at St. Andrews in 2001. What started as a slow burn of a friendship eventually grew and blossomed into deep affection for one another, and by 2003, they were officially dating. It is said that Prince William first got eyes and romantic feelings for Catherine, at least some form of attraction for her, 
when she walked a charity fashion show and she was in this very sheer, risque dress that really highlighted and showcased the undergarments that were paired with the gown. The designer still has this dress that Catherine wore in their collection, not knowing at the time that they would have a piece of royal history in their collection. Not soon after they started dating, the press got wind of this relationship, and as the press does, they got incredibly curious. 2003 then turned into 2004 and then 2005 and so forth from there but not much was really going on in the relationship that the press knew of we saw them out and about as a couple as one would do but no news about anything progressing further was happening devastatingly prince william broke things off between them in 2007 and while she went on record saying that it helped her learn and to grow. At the time, Catherine was really hurt by that. Not soon after, they reunited, settled back together, but the press then <laughs> had already given Catherine the nickname, quote, Weighty Katie, blaming her for not wanting to advance the relationship further. Who knows what was the truth? We will never know. But they dubbed her this from what I've researched because she kept working with her family, she had a few other jobs, and it really didn't seem like she really wanted to settle down yet, hence why Weighty Katie was her nickname. After they reunited in 2007, there was still no news coming out about any coming nuptials and no one really knew what was going to happen to the couple. Would they even be getting married at all? On November 16th, 2010, Clarence House formally announced the engagement of His Royal Highness Prince William of Wales and Miss Catherine Middleton. This announcement filled the public with glee and hope and pride, not only in the UK, but around the world. I remember in America, this took the newsstands by storm, seeing that Prince William was engaged. William proposed in October of 2010, and of course, after informing their families, personal friends, and enjoying some private time as a newly engaged couple, the formal announcement was finally made. On this announcement, the wedding date was left ambiguous, but the public really didn't seem to care about an open-ended wedding date. They were more focused on the engagement ring. In a very touching tribute to his mother, Diana, Princess of Wales, Prince William proposed with his own mother's engagement ring, the wonderful big blue sapphire with diamonds. Little was known publicly about the ring after the funeral of Princess Diana. All we knew was that in dividing up her estate and the jewelry, Prince William got some pieces, Prince Harry got some pieces, and it was known that Prince Harry ended up having the engagement ring. Allegedly, a deal was struck between brothers where Harry exchanged the ring for one of Diana's gold watches that Harry really wanted. The couple sat down for an engagement interview and Catherine selected a wonderful blue dress to match the ring, which was another little subtle nod to Diana and her engagement interview. She had on a, a blue suit that matched the dress nicely. It's a wonderful tribute. Even though the queen did have to give her consent to the engagement, which is what she is required based on the Royal Marriages Act of 1772, she was quoted as saying that she was absolutely delighted for the couple. Congratulations and warm tidings came from around the world as Diana's son was finally getting married. Following the engagement announcement, they both sat down for an ITV interview with political editor Tom Bradby, and they hosted a photo call for the press at St. James's Palace. 
On December 12, 2010, the Buckingham Palace press office released a series of engagement photos that were taken within the state rooms at St. James's Palace on November 25th by framed photographer Mario Testino. Within the engagement interview, there were such questions as, where did you propose? Do you want a lot of children? Where did you first meet? What was your first impressions of one another? When did you meet the other person's family and so forth? And they were answered with fun anecdotes and they were playfully teasing one another, which was actually kind of cute to watch. William said that he proposed to her while on holiday with friends in Kenya, saying that, quote, it felt like it was right. We had been talking about it for a while. Both of them said it was very romantic, and he had planned this engagement for quite some time, and he planned it very thoroughly. He said he kept the engagement ring in his backpack, and he was very anxious about it the entire time because if he lost it, quote, there'd be hell to pay. One thing that is cute is that Catherine did not see it coming at all, and she was genuinely surprised about the engagement, which is romantic and makes all of our... <laughs> uh, diehard romantic hearts just fill with joy knowing that it was this wonderful surprise. One thing I do find interesting is that in the interview, William says that he really didn't ask Catherine's parents for permission to propose to her. He said that he was too scared that they would say no, and he felt that, well, if Catherine said yes, then they really couldn't say no. Luckily, Catherine's parents did, <laughs> uh, they were excited, and they shared in the good news and seemed like they approved of it no matter what, so luckily he was in the clear, but I found it weird that he didn't ask her parents' permission uh, to propose. One thing that is cute in the engagement is that William used to try to cook for Catherine during their years at university to try to impress her, but apparently he wasn't a very good cook, and Catherine would have to swoop in at the end of the meal to try to save it. So, I thought that was kind of cute that he would try to impress her with his cooking. The whole interview is still on YouTube. There are actually quite a few people that have uploaded the interview in its entirety. So if you want to watch it, by all means, it is still on YouTube. And it's, while a short and succinct interview, it's just wonderful to see them interact and be so obviously in love with one another. On November 10th, 2010, another announcement was made. The couple had officially set a date. April 29th, 2011. Later on December 15th, it was ordered by the Queen and her British Council that all across the United Kingdom and a few of the countries in the Commonwealth, the wedding would be a public holiday and everybody could partake in the celebrations. The world now had a concrete date that they could look forward to. They marked it on their calendars and circled it in red. And in the meantime, media outlets and other television networks began to run documentaries and other programs about their courtship, their relationship, documentaries about Catherine and the Middleton family, William after the death of, Di of his mother, Princess Diana. There was a lot of media coverage that was now being released to get everyone excited for this coming wedding. Most of the royal wedding planning was kept a secret until, of course, after the wedding when they released everything and, of course, we got to see it. But they did drop small nuggets every now and then to keep the press and the public at bay. 
the couple was to be wed at Westminster Abbey, which is a very historic church within within England and the United Kingdom. It's known most for being locations of, of various royal weddings, such as the Queen and Prince Philip, Princess Margaret and Lord Snowden, Princess Anne got married there, Prince Andrew got married there. There's a lot of weddings that happen there. And of course, <laughs> Westminster Abbey is where all the coronations take place. So it's a quite a big honor to be married in Westminster Abbey. To fill such a large abbey, there was quite a lengthy guest list and there was a large process that uh, the royal couple and the royal family had to go through in order to make the adequate guest list to fill such a large location. The world wanted to know who was invited and who, of course, wasn't invited, hinting at who the couple was close to and, of course, who was the high society at the time. On February 16th and 17th, 2011, three massive guest lists were finalized and invitations were went out in the name of the queen. The first list consisted of those who were invited to just the ceremony, which totaled at around 1,900 people. The second list were those that were invited to the lunch reception immediately following the ceremony at Buckingham Palace, which was hosted by the queen, and that topped out at around 600 guests. The last list was for an evening dinner party at Buckingham Palace hosted by the Prince of Wales, which that consisted of around 300 people. So you're seeing that as the day progresses, the parties get progressively more and more intimate. Even if it's 300 people, that's still a lot of people. But compared to the initial guest list, that is quite a small group. Out of all of these lists, more than half of the people that were in attendance were friends, family friends, or family members of Prince William and Catherine. Of course, other European royal families were invited, as well as ambassadors, representatives of the charities Prince William worked with, religious organization members, military members, members of the diplomatic corps, and other members within the royal household were invited as well. So they had a lot of categories that they had to fill. It very much was a who's who of royal families across Europe, whether still reigning or not, as well as the upper crust of England's high society at the time. Some of the guests that were invited were, of course, the Spencer family, representatives from the Belgian, Danish, Moroccan, Bulgarian, and Monaco royal families. The Crown Princess of Sweden was there with her husband. The Queen of the Netherlands was there. The King of the King and Queen of Spain were there. Members of the Bose Lion family were there. So the Queen Mum's family. The Dowager Duchess of Devonshire was there as she's been the Mistress of the Robes and very close to the royal family. The Duke and Duchess of Westminster were there as he, uh, the Duke is really close friends to Prince William. Uh, David and Victoria Beckham were there. Sir Elton John was there as he was very close to Princess Diana. The list goes on and on and on of people that were invited to not only the service, but to the receptions as well. Prince Harry was the best man, and following him, Pippa Middleton was the maid of honor. Bridesmaids and page boys selected for the ceremony include Lady Louise Windsor, the Honorable Margarita Armstrong-Jones, Grace Van Cutsum, Eliza Lopes, 
William Lothar Pinkerton, and Thomas Pettifer. All of these were under the age of 10 at the time, and they are children of members of the royal family and uh, friends of Prince William and Catherine. The royal family and the Middleton family were the ones who paid for the wedding itself and everything else, which topped out at around 23.7 million pounds. And Her Majesty's Treasury paid and maintained the security on the day of the wedding, which included the processional to the church and the processional back to the palace. And I've seen so many figures tossed around for how much security cost. It was in the millions of dollars, but I've seen it converted to 18 million pounds, 40 Australian, 40 million Australian dollars, 64 million dollars US. It's, I don't exactly know what the amount of security was because it's been so different from source to source, but it was a lot of money for security to keep not only all the patrons to the church safe, but also (laughs) the couple safe as well. Instead of sending uh, the couple gifts, as which is as kind of an informal tradition that the public would send gifts and well tidings to the couple. They set up the Prince William and Miss Catherine Middleton charitable gift fund. So members of the public and those that were invited could instead make donations to causes that they really believed in instead of giving them gifts. They would rather them donate to charity rather than give them gifts. Charities that benefited from this fund included the New Zealand Church Christ Earthquake Appeal, the Canadian Coast Guard Auxiliary, the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and the Zoological Society of London. And that has now become a tradition where instead of sending gifts, you send, you make donations to causes that they are patron of. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and What do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Getting ready for the wedding, there was a lot of speculation and secrecy about what Catherine was going to wear. Much like Princess Diana, the wedding dress was kept a close guarded secret up until the day of the wedding itself. All we knew, the general public, was that Sarah Burton of Alexander McQueen was commissioned to do the dress. And not only for her, but the maid of honor gown and Here in America, having it be Alexander McQueen raised a lot of eyebrows and kind of concern at the time, because in America, we had very little knowledge, if you're not in the fashion world, such as myself, 
when you think the name Alexander McQueen at the time, it's 2010, 2011, you think of Lady Gaga and these really big avant-garde pieces. So hearing that a future royal duchess commissioning a this London fashion house to do her wedding gown, it raised a little bit of concern as far as what will this look like, but we didn't have the knowledge that, oh, Alexander McQueen has done a lot of work for the royal family and actually has a big respect for British pageantry and royal uniform. That wasn't common knowledge to us here in America at the, at the time. So I can distinctly remember people raising eyebrows who didn't really have a, de- a the depth of fashion knowledge. Uh, just this raised eyebrow of, okay, what is this going to look like then? Alexander McQueen was commissioned in conjunction with the Royal School of Needlework to work on the lace and embroidery on the gown. It was a mixture of antique lace, machine-made lace, another handmade lace, and hand-stitching as well. The lace had motifs of flowers and other details that represented England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. The veil was held together and attached to the Cartier Halo Tiara, which was loaned to Catherine for the ceremony. Catherine was very indifferent about wearing a tiara to the wedding. I've actually heard from some sources, I do not know how reliable they are, that Catherine was against wearing a tiara, and she made this selection quite last minute. The tiara was first gifted to the Queen Mother from her husband, King George VI, when they were just young and early in their marriage, and they were just the Duke and Duchess of York. She wore it quite often in her early years as a young royal duchess, but once the tables started to turn and the um, they took on more royal responsibility, she started to assume more quote-unquote adult pieces, and she stopped wearing the tiara. The halo tiara was inherited by the queen when she turned 18, so Queen Elizabeth did have it, but there's no photographs of her wearing it, at least from what I can find. But Princess Margaret wore the tiara a lot when she was a young princess in the 50s, in the 50s and early 60s. A lot of photographs that we can see of her, she does wear it quite frequently. Once Princess Anne started assuming more royal duties, and when she was a young working princess, she is seen wearing the tiara quite frequently, but that we really don't see it past the 1970s. This wedding was to make the tiara famous again after we hadn't seen it for quite a few decades. Now, in <laughs> when talking about the gown, we have to think about the age-old tradition, something old, something new, something borrowed, and something blue. Well, the something borrowed was the tiara, the Cartier Halo tiara. The queen let her borrow it. The something blue was actually stitched into the bodice. I've tried to see if you can find it. Apparently you can when you go to visit the gown, but it doesn't really photograph very well. But apparently those that were sewing the gown and Sarah Burton herself designed a blue ribbon hidden into the bodice of the gown. There's somewhere in the bodice is a blue ribbon. And that is a something blue. The something new are her earrings. Her parents had custom earrings made that not only had a motif that matched the Cartier Halo Tiara, but it also had an acorn on them, which is on the Middleton coat of arms. So it was a wonderful way to show the Middletons and the Royals coming together. That was the something new. And the something old was the lace. There uh, were a few pieces of antique lace on the gown as well, but any new lace that was made was done in an old style, in an old fashion, and that was the something old. 
Other sources hint that the something old was also the shape of the gown being more of a Victorian silhouette. There's Victorian corsetry in the back. The lace and the style of the lace is antique and some of the methods used to make the gown were antique as well. So many people say that the making of the gown itself is the something old, but we do know concretely that there was antique lace used in the gown as well. So we have these something old, something new, something borrowed, and something blue represented in the gown as well. It's said that the gown worn by Her Serene Highness Princess Grace of Monaco was a big inspiration for this gown. And when you look at them side by side, you can clearly see that inspiration was drawn from one to get to this. It said that the gown had around a six and a half foot train, but in some places I've seen that it was nine foot long and I don't have a tape measure. I have yet to see the gown in person. So who knows exactly how long it is, but it wasn't a monumentously long train like Princess Diana had. Her train was over 25 feet long. So it was understated and very, very demure. And I think a very sophisticated move to have just a simple, succinct train. Regarding the tiara, there was a lot of discussion about what she was going to wear, what tiara she was going to select. And there was a little headline that made its way over to America that she was going to wear the Spencer family tiara. And that raised a lot of eyebrows and confusion as to where that story came from. Because as most of us know, the Spencer family tiara is owned by the Spencer family. It's owned by Diana's brother, the current Earl Spencer, and his wife, the Countess, has used it from time to time. And it was last seen a few years ago when one of Princess Diana's nieces got married she wore it and it was wonderful to see it again we hadn't we haven't seen the spencer family tiara in a while i don't know where that story came from it's quite a far-fetched story but (laughs) that it did make its rounds the men being prince william and prince harry wore military uniforms william wore an irish guard mounted officer's uniform with his order of the garter blue riband and star as well as his raf wings and golden jubilee medal he could have picked quite a few different military uniforms as he is in quite a few branches either active or as a figurehead of some of some sorts but he picked the irish guard mounted officer's uniform as he had just been appointed colonel of the irish guard just before the wedding prince harry wore the uniform of a captain of the blue royals and he wore his army air corps wings his gold his golden jubilee medal but also his afghanistan campaign medals Others in the wedding party wore gowns. Maid of Honor Pippa Middleton wore, to my eyes, an off-white gown that was also done by Sarah Burton of Alexander McQueen. The younger bridesmaids wore really cute uh, little dresses that were designed by Nikki McFarlane. They mirrored the bride's dress in that not only were they made of the same fabric, they had kind of a similar silhouette being a very full skirt, but they also had the same button detail and lace details on them as well. They had a gold sash around the waist and they had little flower wreath crowns as well on their heads. Now these flower wreath crowns were made of ivy and the lilies of the valley, which were a touching nod to Catherine's parents as they had 
done something similar in their wedding in 1981. The Page Boys wore outfits that were designed by Kashket and partners. They were done in the style of a foot guard officer at the time of the Regency, and they were in red tunics and had gold piping and shamrock detail on them. They too had a gold sash about their waist, but that was detailed with crimson and had a tassel on the side, which is tradition for these uniforms in the presence of the royal family. On the wedding day, Catherine had a small bouquet with her that had lilies of the valley for return of happiness, sweet William for gallantry, hyacinth for consistency of love, and a spring of myrtle, which is a royal tradition that dates back centuries. As is the tradition started by the Queen Mum, after the service, the wedding bouquet was placed on the tomb of the unknown warrior in Westminster Abbey. On the day of the service, those in the wedding party and members of the family arrived by car to Westminster Abbey, but they left in carriage. The route the family took and those in the party was quite complex, to say the least. It began and ended at Buckingham Palace and Westminster Abbey, and the, the route was quite intricate. It passed through the mall, past Clarence House, and then it passed by Horse Guards Road, Horse Guards Parade, through Horse Guards Arch, through Whitehall, and then the south side of Parliament Square and Broad Sanctuary. After the ceremony, the newlywed royal couple and everybody else in the party would be returning that same way but by carriage. Starting at 6 a.m. the day of the wedding, all roads used not only in this processional, but ones that were going to be used by the public to get to the to get to Westminster Abbey were closed off to the public, and they were of course prepared for the very high traffic of both cars and the public. Starting at around 8:15 a.m. was when people started arriving at the chapel. This included the main congregation of guests, governor generals, prime ministers of Commonwealth realms, all the all diplomats, and everybody else that was invited outside of the family started arriving starting at 8.15. Once all of them arrived, from there, the royal family and the Middleton family started to arrive, which was around 10 o'clock, and that was like clockwork, one right after the other. Prince William and Prince Harry left Clarence House to get at the Abbey at around 10.10. As is custom, as you would expect, the Queen and Prince Philip were the last ones to arrive, and shortly thereafter, Catherine and her father arrived via a state Rolls Royce at 10.52 a.m. The service started exactly at 11 a.m. on April 29th, 2011, and finished a little bit after 12.15 p.m. I've talked a lot about what Catherine was going to wear, and this isn't a fashion podcast, but I can't stress enough how much the world waited on pins and needles to see what she was going to wear. When she stepped out of the car, even when you would see her driving up to get to the Abbey, and you could see this and you could see that, it left the world completely speechless, seeing her step out of the car, and you could fully see her and the wind was blowing ever so brief ever so lightly and it i i can't stress it enough i even have trouble still finding words i remember watching it live and it completely taking my breath away it really sort of foreshadowed what we could expect from her as a royal and she seems to have lived up to that expectation she set she set for herself it was this gown 
and all the accessories was classic, streamlined. It was this pairing of old, and but with a streamlined style, it was sophisticated, it was clean. And even her makeup and hair, it left the world agape. And not only did people see Princess Grace of Monaco's gown in what Catherine was wearing, but people were also reminded of Princess Margaret's wedding gown. The silhouettes were quite similar. So she was honoring a lot of royals of the past in her gown, but it it redefined bridal wear for quite a while and it really reinforced the Kate phenomenon that was born right when she got engaged. This Kate phenomenon that designers really looked forward to. Royal fashion's quite interesting, but I can't stress enough how her stepping out of that car changed royal fashion. The service itself was wonderful. It was beautiful. I wasn't able to watch it live when it did happen. I had to go back and rewatch it uh, hours later. But it was a wonderful, wonderful service. The service was mostly officiated by the Dean of Westminster, John Hall, and the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Bishop of London preached the sermon and also officiated alongside the Dean of Westminster. It is custom that the weddings of future monarchs are officiated by the Archbishop of Canterbury. One thing I do find interesting is that apparently the Bishop of London, Richard Chartres, confirmed both William and Catherine when they were younger. It took the bride around three and a half minutes to get down the aisle to the altar, and in that time, music poured out from the abbey, and it was quite a wondrous sight to see. They had these little trees planted or put in down the aisle, and it sort of looked like she was wandering through the forest in some regard. During the exchanging of the rings and the vows, the couple promised to, quote, love, comfort, honor, and keep each other. As is custom, the rings were made of Welsh gold, and while William doesn't wear his, which is a royal male tradition, uh, Catherine still has hers, and I believe hers hasn't been soldered to the engagement ring. It's Hers is still loose. The music for the ceremony consisted of two choirs, a full orchestra, and a fanfare brass ensemble. Those that were used were the Westminster Abbey Choir, the Chapel Royal Choir, the London Chamber Orchestra, and the Fanfare Ensemble was the central band of the Royal Air Force. Additionally, the organ was used quite frequently throughout the service as well. The music was really thoughtfully planned out during the entire ceremony and leading up to the ceremony itself in this sort of waiting period. The music consisted of other hymns, interlude music, or just any other pieces in the classical canon. I know uh, Johann Sebastian Bach was used, Ralph von Williams was used. A lot of classical canon composers were used, which is wonderful, and they were mostly English composers. The couple entered the abbey as His Royal Highness Prince William of Wales and Miss Catherine Middleton, but as they left to get into the carriage and return to the palace, they were now their royal highnesses, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, the Earl and Countess of Strathern, and the Baron and Baroness Carfarcus. They traveled back to the palace to thunderous applause from the public as they packed the streets to try to get a glimpse of the royal newlyweds. Everywhere they went during this processional, they heard thunderous cheers of praise, well wishes, and luck, or just general cheering for this new couple. When they stepped onto the balcony of Buckingham Palace to greet the public, much like other weddings past, 
The public was wonderfully surprised when Prince William reached over and kissed Catherine, but this was a different kind of kiss. We can think back to Charles and Diana, it was quick, it was just a little peck on the lips. This one lingered a little bit longer, which signaled to everybody else that they were still very much in love. And that picture of them kissing on the balcony lined newspapers and other tabloid media for weeks after the wedding. And any time that the wedding is mentioned, that is one of the pictures that immediately comes up. There were many wonderful tributes to Princess Diana during the wedding itself. Of course, there was the engagement ring that was hers when she was alive, but Westminster Abbey was a wonderfully deliberate choice made by the couple. Those of us that do know, Westminster Abbey was where her funeral was held in 1997, and people that were invited to the ceremony reflected back saying that her presence was felt the entire service. As Catherine walked down the aisle, she walked to the introit, which was a piece of music that was allegedly used during the wedding of Prince Charles and Princess Diana in 1981. Additionally, the hymn Guide Me, O Thou Great Redeemer was sung during the, cer- during the ceremony, which was the final piece played at Princess Diana's funeral. As a last tribute and reminder to the late princess, the newlyweds left the abbey in the 1902 state Landau carriage, which was the exact same one Charles and Diana used in 1981. It was really bittersweet knowing that she couldn't be there to see this wedding, but Prince William was very determined to be sure that her presence was felt and that they were reminders throughout the entire service that were in tribute to his mother. Following the ceremony and official portraits taken at the palace, now is where the fun begins, the reception, and it was time to relax and celebrate. The formal luncheon held at the palace, hosted by the queen, left little time to change, but there was still some fun to be had. This is where the official wedding cake was seen, and it was quite a feat to behold. An eight-tier fruit cake decorated with the new couple's seal and over 900 sugar paste flowers and lattice work greeted the luncheon guests. Additionally, there was a groom's cake, which was a chocolate biscuit cake. Not only is this Prince William's favorite, but it's also the favorite of the Queen and Princess Diana. As the afternoon turned into evening, the dinner party would begin very soon, and the couple actually had to change. There was a pretty decent break of time in between the luncheon and the evening dinner party, and the new Duke and Duchess retired back to Clarence House, where they not only had some time to themselves, but they changed, and there's a wonderful video of them coming down the stairwell with uh, Charles and Camilla following right behind them. This is where we see not only William get into traditional black tie dinner jacket tuxedo but uh, Catherine is seen in her other white gown that was also made by Sarah Burton of Alexander McQueen the dinner party was held at Buckingham Palace and it was filled with great food great drinks great music and great dancing Ellie Golding was invited to the to this uh, evening party to be the musician and it lasted well into the wee hours of the morning The wedding reception and party finally ended at 3 a.m., with fireworks being set off on the palace grounds. As you would expect with this monumentous and historic occasion, the press and media were everywhere. Traditional media and other recording services were allowed into the Abbey to broadcast. I believe there were 11 news outlets that were allowed in. 
and other streaming services. And <laughs> since it was so well documented, you can actually watch the entire thing on YouTube. It's about three and a quarter or three and a half hours long, but it showcases the entire service, notable people arriving, the royal family and Middleton family arriving, so that's why it's so long. Commemorative plates, tea towels, shirts, books, coins, other uh, fake currency, anything you could possibly think of to sell to commemorate this wonderful moment were made, sold, and bought by many, 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 many people. Over 5,000 applications were filed to have street parties to either celebrate or protest the royal wedding and the royal couple all across the, the, the UK. And not too many were actually granted, but people still filed to have parties, whether in support or to not support the couple. The wedding was broadcast across multiple news outlets, and much like the cost of security, these numbers fluctuate. In total, it was forecasted that around 2 billion people would tune in, and when you tally everything up, that's actually not too far from the truth. In the UK, around 36.7 million people tuned in to watch it. In the US, the number was around 22.8 million. Online, this wedding beat out the 2009 memorial livestream for Michael Jackson, and it held the 2012 Guinness World Record for most watched livestream event, which topped out at around 72 million. And all across the world, millions upon millions of people watched. I wouldn't be surprised if the number got close to 1 billion, but quite a huge audience and a pretty decent chunk of the world's population tuned in to watch this wedding. It was something that the entire world seemed to really focus on. Following all this public attention and a gigantic wedding, the royal couple set off on their honeymoon. However, it was slightly delayed. Prince William had to immediately return to work as a search and rescue pilot, and they didn't officially leave for their honeymoon until May 9th. So there was quite a f about a week and a half time in between the ending of the ceremony and their actual honeymoon. There was a lot of speculation about where they would go and what they would do, but they eventually ended up spending 10 days on a private island in private villa in the Seychelles, I believe is how that's pronounced. It was a very short honeymoon as he was still very active in the RAF and being a search and rescue pilot, and the royal couple had scheduled a tour of Canada in the United States. So... While they got to endorse some time together, it was just as clockwork, right back to work. Following the wedding, we have to acknowledge this. All anybody could talk about, aside from her dress, were what all the women were wearing. So they had fascinators and traditional or typical morning attire, light Light-colored pastels, flowers, wonderful frocks, but the fascinators are what people talked about. And ones that everybody loved to talk about were the ones worn by Princess Eugenie and Princess Beatrice. They were on many fashion lists as either questionable choices or <laughs> some people didn't necessarily agree with their choices. I have no opinion either way, but their fascinators were very avant-garde, very different, some people even compared them to the Wicked Stepsisters of Cinderella, which wasn't nice and not cool, but it did make me giggle at the time, I can't lie to you. But everybody had all eyes on what the women were wearing, their fascinators, what the queen wore. The queen wore, I believe, bright yellow that day. We have to acknowledge, the if we're going to talk at length about what Catherine wore, we have to acknowledge what everybody else wore, and fascinators were on display that day. 
I was in high school when this happened, and I can remember there was hardly any news in America at the time about the royal family. In fact, there was really little interest at all from what I can remember. But all of a sudden, this engagement was announced, and America lost their minds for the royal family. And I woke up incredibly early. It was a school day for me, and I woke up so early, I got my breakfast and turned the volume as quiet as I could so I could still hear it but not disturb the rest of my family. And the last thing I saw before having to leave to go to school was Catherine getting out of the car, getting out of the car. And after that, I had to go to school and it was so I was so excited to watch this and my mom tuned in later. She watched a uh, restream of the wedding and she woke up early when she was in high school to see Charles and Diana get married. So it's only fitting that I would wake up early to watch uh, this royal wedding. But it was for us in America, especially where I am in Ohio, it seemingly took everything by storm. And we went from not really talking about the royals to that's all you could talk about was the royals. This wedding reignited a sense of love and appreciation for the royal family within the public, both within the UK and outside. Here was a commoner, albeit a very fortunate and wealthy one and had privilege in her own right, but a commoner nonetheless that was marrying a prince who would someday be king. Here was the son of Princess Diana, the people's princess, finally getting married and having his own happy ending even if his mother's was cut short. This wedding marked a completely new chapter for the royal family and it really helped with their PR and really boosting people's support for the royal family. It was as if the windows within the palace were opened and a breath of fresh air and it blew all the dust off in the palace. They weren't necessarily in a bad position, but they weren't in a good position either. They were just there and this wedding really helped reignite and have people develop a love and appreciation for them again. This was quite a monumentous day in not only British history, but world history. A lot of the photographs that you can see from this day, it looks as if it's a coronation or a huge event, but no, that's their wedding. I, I cannot stress this enough for people that cannot remember watching it or weren't alive to remember when it was. This was such a huge event that I'm happy I could participate in at least a little bit. In these 10 years, they have brought three children into this world, have worked tirelessly for the queen and the firm and the government and for the monarchy. They participated in quite a lot of tours. And while there has been ups and downs that have leaked their way into the public, they have still stood side by side with one another and have been true and have done their best to maintain their wedding vows. Who knows how things will change in the coming years as the royal family begins to shift and evolve to meet the modern demands, but one thing is certain, they are a wonderful addition to the crown and to the government and to the public. As each passing day comes, it seems that the public still falls in love with them each chance that they have. Today, we talked about the royal wedding and we celebrate William and Catherine on 10 years of marriage. That is quite a feat. Happy anniversary and here's to 10 more happy years. 
My sources for today's episode are Wikipedia, the ITV YouTube channel, the Royal Family YouTube channel, womeninhome.com, and the People Magazine 2011 Collector's Edition for the Royal Wedding. If you made it this far, thank you for stopping by the podcast today. I'm really happy you came. If you'd like to recommend topics for future episodes or let me know how I'm doing so I can improve the podcast going forward, you can email me at britishroyalfanpod at gmail.com. Any and all suggestions are welcome. If you want to stay up to date on the podcast or events happening within the royal family, you can head over to Twitter and follow me at fanatic underscore royal. I do my best to post regularly. I've recently been posting about royal books. And I do my best to interact with you as best I can. If you want to donate to help support the podcast, there are links on Anchor and the Twitter homepage. Any and all donations would be much appreciated and they'd help improve the podcast. One thing about the Anchor link is those are monthly donations. If you would like to do a one-time donation, let me know if a a one-time PayPal link would be even better. Let me know if you would like to support the podcast and how I can best do that for all of you head over to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you are currently listening to rate, review, subscribe, and share. The more you do that, the more people can see and the podcast family can continue to grow. More people are listening than subscribing and rating and reviewing. So the more you do that, I would greatly appreciate that. Have a great rest of your week, everyone. Stay safe and healthy. Try to do something nice for someone today, and I'll see you in the next one.